Yes, it is great. Thank you, Pastor Graham. How great. Okay, well, um, we're going to move forward with our look at the book of Revelation. That's Revelation, not Revelations. Um, and uh, we're picking up in chapter 1 from verse 5. And uh, what we're... <laughs> oh, we're not at the start here. And I'd just uh, like to uh, remind you all to turn your phones off. <laughs> Um, Okay, so last week we looked at um, the beginning in some ways of of this letter that John's writing to the churches, started with the dear, the dear John, or just the John, interestingly, Uh, and he begins to kind of, he begins to address these seven churches in what we would call Turkey these days, or Asia Minor. Uh, But... um, you might notice there's a little subheading in some of your Bibles above this section uh, and it addresses what we addressed last week, that John greets these seven churches. Um, but then it might have a strange D word next to it, uh, doxology. Does anyone have the word doxology as a subheading in their Bible saying greetings and doxology? And that's just one of those words that uh, is meant to frustrate us by making us think, why couldn't you use the other word, which is, we might use the word worship. So it's like about prayer or song um, or worship. And you might even notice, and it's a good reason to, to have, have a Bible in front of you because these things all matter. They affect how we read Scripture. You might even notice that the words are arranged in this section a little bit like a poem. Um, and that's because, to a degree, there, there is a kind of poetic dimension to what we're looking at today. Uh, because John breaks from... And, and he might, might have made a good Pentecostal. He breaks from addressing uh, the people that he's speaking to in these seven churches into worship. Um, so the title of the message today is uh, Don't Worry, Worship. John's writing a letter to these persecuted churches. Some of them uh, we might understand have even been martyred. Uh, and uh, he says he, he's writing to sort of reassure them to do something pastoral, um, but he breaks straight into worship, and I think that's really significant for us as we read this section. Um, I got Joan, who speaks a bit of French, to write out phonetically how I say this guy's name, because she had to duck off, Antoine de Saint-Zippery. Uh, Antoine de Saint-Zippery was uh, kind of a a bit of a renaissance man last century he was a poet and a writer and also a pioneer of flight so someone who knew about dreaming things and then actually making them happen in the real world and he said this if you want to build a ship don't drum up people to collect wood and don't assign them tasks and work but rather teach them to long for the endless immensity of the sea And I think, I mean, I love that quote, I don't know how you feel about it, but I think to the extent that um, Antoine is understanding human beings to be loving, imagining, worshipping creatures, which I think he is doing here, he holds a biblical worldview. I don't know whether he was a Christian or not, 
But the fact that he doesn't define, um, he, sa- he sort of doesn't define the task in terms of the what needs to be done. He, he says you need to, to motivate people, speak to their hearts and speak to their imaginations. I think this quote really resonates with something that is strong through scripture. You see, um, one thing we realise if we read the Old Testament is the Ten Commandments was not enough. Um, If God had just given his people the Ten Commandments, I mean, they failed to live up to them so much anyway, uh, so much of the time. But if God had just given them a list of don'ts, uh, who knows that it's hard to be inspired (laughs) by a list of don'ts. It's hard to uh, sort of base your life uh, on a set of prohibitions. It doesn't actually lead to a particularly inspiring or good life. (laughs) It leads to a life that is all about the negative and the things that we shouldn't do. And so God did give his people a lot more than just a set of rules. If you read the Old Testament, you see that he gave them a pattern of life, a pattern of feasts and celebrations across their year. And probably the most significant is the feast or celebration that we call the Passover, where the Jews commemorate that God liberated them from slavery in Egypt. And how did they do this? They, had a, they have a feast, don't they? They have this, have this big meal um, that kind of remembers that they were once enslaved, but God rescued them. And so we might uh, think of Exodus 12 here, where it says, you've got to do this Memorial Day um, for me. Uh, throughout generations. It's something that you've got to do forever to keep the feast of the Passover. That feast is a part of Israel's worship life. But it doesn't stop there with just a remembrance of what God has done for them, setting them free. It actually goes on to a vision of the future in Exodus about what God wants to do through his people. He doesn't just want them to be free. He wants them to be free for a purpose. And so we pick this up in chapter 19 of Exodus, where it says, um, if you obey my covenant, if if you keep the covenant out of all the nations, you will be my treasured possession. And even though the whole earth is mine, says God to Israel, you will be, for me, a kingdom of priests. So there's a function that I am calling you into. I am liberating you from slavery, but it's to do a thing, to be priests. Now, if you know anything about priests in most contexts, but in the context of the life of Israel, they're the people who are going between God and the people, right? It's understandable that in the life of Israel, people had to be merchants and farmers, and not everyone could sort of consecrate their whole life to the service of God so that they could come back to the people, so that they could lead the people throughout the year in the worship of Yahweh. And God says, actually, it's like I want all of you as my people, as he's speaking to Israel, as he's speaking to the Hebrews. I want all of you to have that kind of function in the world, a priestly function. I don't know if you've picked this up, but there's a bit of a sort of, um, like a, a, what's that word in graphics where you've got like a, (laughs) there's an axis, there's like an axis here, there's like two horizons here, Uh, when it concerns the worship life of Israel. One is about what God has done in the past, but 
he also speaks to them there in Exodus about who they are to be in the present. And I want to suggest that this is always based on a view of the future that God has. And so worship in Israel, as in the church these days, if you think about it, involves these three dimensions, these three stages. Worship remembers what God has done for us. So in Israel's life, it was remembering being liberated from slavery through the Passover. Uh, It looks for what God is doing through his people in the present to be a priestly nation amongst the nations. And then it looks forward in hope to what God will do. And of course, um, you know, if we read the prophets through the Old Testament, they look forward to a time where the God of Israel will be the God of all the nations, where God will universally be recognised as king over all. What God has done for us, what God is doing through us, and what God is going to do in the fullness of time. And... It might not surprise us then, if this is how we understand what worship is, that we might find this in Jewish John's letter to the seven churches in Asia. And the reason why I've coloured it like this is we're going to do a little bit of doxology now. We're going to uh, read this passage together. So this is the passage for today. In the manner which many scholars suggest it was intended to be read. So as a kind of call and response prayer. So I'll read the white, I'll hand it over to you like that, and you'll read the yellow, and then we will get through Revelation 1, 5, part B, 2, 8. To him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood and has made us to be a kingdom and priests to serve his God and Father. To him be glory and power forever and ever. Amen. I I think there's some people with a Uniting Church background in the room. You actually did that. Well done. Or Anglican Church. Well done. We won't do too much of this, I promise. But when it's in the Bible, it's worth doing, right? Look. He is coming with the clouds, and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him. And all peoples on earth will mourn because of him. So shall it be. Amen. That was less good, but we're we're doing it still, so thank you. And then finally, verse 8. I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord. Wonderful. This is just more evidence, uh, and I've been through uh, some in the past few weeks, of the fact that this book is something that we come to as a worshipping community. It's a letter written to churches that would have been read when they were meeting together. This little doxological, worshipy, poetic-y bit is indication either that John uh, is writing a doxology is writing it in such a way as they do what we just did when they read it or it's possible that he's picked up some little prayers that they already did and sort of inserted them in his letter so that when whoever's reading the letter in whichever church it's in everyone goes i know this bit and they just join in 
because it's about more than just, and this speaks to worship, doesn't it? It's about more than just ideas. It's about a way of living. Um, and scripture is like that, isn't it? It makes a lot more sense lived. It was always intended to be lived in community. If we're reading Revelation in our private studies, no matter how well we do that, um, and that's a good thing to do, we're never going to get the full picture what it was intended to be in the way that we will get it if we do it together in community. And so you might notice these three stages in that passage. It begins by addressing what Jesus has done. It says in verse 5, to him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood and has made us to be a kingdom and priests to serve his God and Father. Have we already heard those words this morning? We have. It's straight out of Exodus. So John is connecting the story that he's reminding those people in the Asian church with the story of Israel. He's saying God's been about this for a very long time. You are a part of something that goes back centuries and centuries. You're a part of a story about a God who frees people, frees people from sin. But thankfully, to, you know, he loves them, he's freed them, he's made them priests. Thankfully, it's not something that stays in the past. He takes us through these three stages of worship, three components of worship. He goes on. So you're loved, you've been freed uh, from your sins by his blood, but he has made you to be a kingdom of priests. So John is saying, just as God called Israel to be a kingdom of priests, Jesus calls you to be a kingdom of priests. It says, look, in verse 7, he's coming with the clouds and every eye... We'll, we'll stop there, actually. Look, he is coming with the clouds. And I just want to... A thought to, to travel with. I want you to... I've italicized is there. Because John speaks about something that has happened in the past, that Jesus has freed us from our sin... He speaks about something in the present, we're priests now, and Jesus is coming. Now, Greek is even more <laughs> sort of particular about tenses than English is. In the Greek, there's an immediate immediacy to the way John talks about Jesus coming on the clouds. He doesn't say he will come on the clouds. It's interesting he says he is coming on the clouds. This is something that Jesus is doing. And if you have heard this language before outside of the book of Revelation, um, you may have heard it in Daniel 7. So John is picking up on a, a, a sort of tradition in Jewish literature, an apocalyptic tradition, um, and he's picking up on a, a dream that Daniel has. You'll remember Daniel was an exile in Babylon, and he has this dream about these four kind of gruesome-looking beasts, aren't they? And if you know this passage, you'll know that they represent earthly kingdoms or empires, bloodthirsty, God-opposing, beastly empires. And Daniel's seeing a vision 
of the future, from the empire he's in to empires that will come, represented as beasts. And in this little passage from Daniel chapter 7, uh, we find this. In my vision at night, I looked and there before me was one like a son of man, which basically just means human, a human, one like a human, coming with the clouds of heaven. He approached the Ancient of Days and was led into his presence. He was given authority, glory and sovereign power. All nations and peoples of every language worshipped him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away and his kingdom is one that will never be destroyed. Now we can see why John grabs this, can't we? Because he's been all about, even just in these first five or six verses of Revelation, he's been all about the eternal kingdom of Jesus the King, which he is seeing in his vision come into place. He reaches for this instance where Daniel sees the future and he sees the coming of Jesus' kingdom, the the human one. Um, And he's saying something like that is what I'm talking about now. Now, I just skipped over that uh, thing for time. But just to, to make a point, Daniel is writing in the, midst, in the belly of the beast of one of these bloody uh, God-hating, you know, Yahweh-hating empires, Babylon, right? And as with many of the empires in that cultural context, many of the people groups, there was an association between clouds and the deity. So they were farming people, they didn't really know why the weather worked like it worked. They suspected it might have something to do with the gods. And so you're probably even familiar with this idea. Many of them had like a rain god. Um, the god that they were most in fear of is the one that might not let them get their crops. Daniel tweaks that a little bit. And this happens a lot in exilic literature where the writers kind of go, well, you'll, you'll understand this idea if you're a Babylonian that there's a connection between God and clouds, but God isn't. My God is not the rain God. My God is the ancient of days who created it all. And here I see not the ancient of days, but this mysterious human figure who comes with the cloud. Now, what Daniel thought he was writing about is a bit of a mystery to me, but we know who John's thinking about, don't we? He's thinking about Jesus, the human one, who is divine, comes as a God in power. The point there being God did something, freeing his people from their sins through Jesus' blood. He is doing something in the world now through this Jesus, something powerful. We might think of the power of a thunderstorm that brings life-giving rain for ancient peoples if they worshipped the thunderstorm Daniel's going it's kind of like that (laughs) but slightly different John's going something powerful is happening now through this son of man this human figure the past the present and now the future if we read on the second part of verse 7 if you've got your Bibles in front of you So he's coming on the cloud, something he's doing now, and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him, and all of the peoples on earth will mourn 
because of him. So here John switches to the future. Every eye will see him. And what he's speaking about here is the moment when Jesus will be revealed to all as king. So some eyes see Jesus as king in, in John's time. Some eyes in those, chur- those churches are proof of it, that there are people who, who somehow have received this mystery that God came as a human being and achieved something through the brutality of the cross. John is saying there will be a time when Jesus will be fully revealed in history and he will be revealed to all nations and all eyes. And it says, interestingly, those who, even those who pierced him and everyone will, in that group will mourn. Now there's a couple of verses that John's vibing off here just to explain this strange, every eye will see him and even those who pierced him and they will mourn. One of them you might be familiar with from John's Gospel right? So when Jesus is on the cross, it appears that he's dead and one of the soldiers sticks a lance into his side and it says there you can see that blood and water flowed out, which is kind of an autopsy thing, right? It's saying actually he's really dead. The fact that blood and water mix out is confirmation that he's dead. They don't have to wait any longer. You might think um, of the Gospel of Mark actually where it says a centurion was watching Jesus and the moment he died, what did the centurion say? Surely this man was the son of God. So John's evoking (laughs) that moment and it's speaking, right, to those who who went against God's will in, in the piercing of Christ, in the rejection of Christ. Those who didn't see that God was working through Christ and so rejected him in that moment, didn't see what God was doing. Kind of in parallel to this is um, another passage that John seems to be harking back to from Zechariah. So Zechariah is a prophet of Israel, and he sees a day where despite the fact that Israel's kind of not done a good job of being God's priestly people, the reign of God is established in Jerusalem. And he says this, on that day, those of the house of David who've messed up being priests, a nation of priests for God, will look upon me, and there's this language in Zechariah of God as a good shepherd, will look upon me, the one that they have pierced, and they will mourn, right? So we've got an Old Testament picture of God becoming king, connected to this language of being pierced. And then we've also got the telling of one of Jesus' friends of Jesus' death and the language of pierced. And in both of those instances, Zechariah 12 and also John, there is a connection between the piercing and the establishment of God's kingdom. So that's important to follow. A connection between the piercing and the establishment of God's kingdom. Now, we've just done this series on uh, the upside-down kingdom, the king of love. That's not a new idea to us, that in in being lifted up on the cross, uh, it's a picture of Christ's enthronement, actually. 
the, the, the picture that God gives us of the kingly power of his kingdom is Christ, <laughs> the God who became human, as we looked at last week, so wanting to point to God's love, so wanting to give us freedom that he goes to death for it. He lays down his life and is brutally killed through crucifixion. Now, I've talked the last couple, uh, few weeks about doing a bit of theological triage as we read this book. The fact that, you know, we, we've got to be careful about keeping the main things the main things, but also <laughs> allowing for the fact that this is a really difficult book and Christians have disagreed about different elements of this. So, I am just putting this here as, as an idea to maybe travel with. It's definitely not an issue of dogma. It's not even an issue of doctrine. But it's significant, I think, that there's a bit of a switcheroo of expectations that we might bring to this passage. We might think about the cross as the thing that happens in, you know, in history and the coming on the clouds as the thing which happens at the end of history. So we might have a, an understanding of God, maybe just not formally, but under the surface that the real moment when Christ is revealed is when he comes in power, like one of the rain gods on the clouds, right? Uh, uh, so with thunder and lightning and, and gamma rays and <laughs> whatever, a sword out of his mouth. John says Christ is coming on the clouds now and we look forward to <laughs> the full revelation of Jesus in the world in a way that's connected to the cross. So I don't think John is suggesting that Jesus will be crucified again, absolutely not, once and for all time. But I think what he's doing is he's planting a little seed to say, why would God change the kind of power that he uses when god wants to reveal himself most fully that day at the end of history where all people recognize that christ was king it's not because he's like baal throwing lightning bolts at people all people will recognize the mystery that god became man and laid down his life the cross makes sense right till the end. It's not a speed bump on the way to a day where God comes back with army tankers and laser guns. Something to travel with. Yolly's never thought about Jesus and, and, and Navy tankers. This passage finishes, it's one of only two places where God, the Ancient of Days, to use Daniel's language, speaks directly. He says, I am the Alpha and the Omega, the one who is and who was and who is to come. Sounds like Israel's God. Sounds like a God drawing us into a life of worship orientating our hearts and our imaginations to those things that he has done for us. 
those things that he draws us into by his grace in the now and then giving us hope for a future where all will see the glory of God manifest in the one who gave up his life for all. Can I get an amen? Is that like... It's better. <laughs> it's even better. It's even better than you think it is, isn't it? It's better than you think it is. I'm going to get the, the team up to begin to just lead us into a time of worship as we close. And we're going to come around the table, an act of worship, right, where we remember what Christ has done for us in the, in the blood and the body the bread and the wine, we remember what he gave up for us, how much he loves us, that he has set us free from our sins. And by those same elements, we anticipate, don't we, the eschatological feast, that day where we will, we will rejoice, we'll eat and we'll drink, every tear will have been wiped away, every sorrow dealt with, every fact of suffering redeemed every physical infirmity dealt with and um, I don't want you to rush to you, by all means you can do the rippy rippy but I don't want you to rush to take the elements just yet I want you to think about those two horizons that are represented by what's in your hands this morning, that this mystery that God came as a human being who knows what it's like to live the life you live so intimately, was willing to be so humble. I mean... He deserves to sit on a heavenly throne forever. The superlatives of the, 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 the thundercloud, you know, they don't even really do him justice, and yet he comes. As a poor couple's child. And embraces death humiliating death for us so that you have this hope a hope of a future where everything that's wrong with being human is dealt with but what I want you to think about this morning is the now the priestly vocation that he calls you to he doesn't want you to live in the past or just in the future remembering you know that old time religion <laughs> whenever your health on days were or being so focused on the fulfillment of what he's going to do inevitably that you don't do the thing that he's called you into now to be a priest to the world it's easy to, um, when I scratch around for an example of someone who's like this for me, to, to pick on uh, Father Clem, uh, just because he's one of those people. I mean, Clem and Leanne, you know, whatever I'm going through, 
I'll have a chat to them. You know, I, I just I don't even have to talk to them sometimes. I just see them, and I think it's it's gonna be all right. That my the fact that I wrote my car off really not a big deal in the grand scheme of things. Um, there is hope. <laughs> there is love. There is purpose. Uh, I regret using Clem in some ways because he's a pastor and that's like easy pickings. But you know people like this who aren't pastors, don't you? Many of you, most of you, if not all of you, you are people like this. At least on your best days. Aren't we all? I've heard that Clem has bad days. I'm hanging out to see one. Um, but, you know, on your best days, you remember who you are in Christ and what he's done for you. You're living lives of hope when so many of your neighbours, your colleagues, your friends aren't. <laughs> this is a proof. Sometimes we just need to bring it to the surface a bit more, don't we? We need to remind ourselves. And that what is what worship has always been about. It's about doing things <laughs> here on earth in the physical that point us to the spiritual It's not just about shifting timber around. It's about the majesty of the sea, his great love, his good purpose, his plan. So as you take that element today, if you haven't already, I want to commit you again to God's purpose for your life as priests. Holy God, why you choose us is beyond me but thank you God thank you Jesus for what you have done and I believe every act of love and kindness and generosity that you do for God in the world. I've got a sneaking suspicion that that's what it means when it says that he is coming on the clouds. That is the power <laughs> of the kingdom. That his sacrifice means that you are free to live in love as a priest, to represent God's love to the world. By your grace, make us worthy of your sacrifice and the future that you call us to. God, help us to be a true worshipping people, aware of what you've done, aware of what you're going to do, opening our hearts and lives for your spirit to occupy.